0: Welcome to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's episode, we're discussing the 2014 film 71 and its depiction of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. For listeners who aren't familiar, the Troubles was a period of about 30 years from the late 1960s to the late 1990s in Northern Ireland. The Troubles saw significant political unrest and violence waged by paramilitary organizations and British forces over the status of Northern Ireland. The majority of the island of Ireland had secured political independence from the United Kingdom and the British Empire by the mid-20th century, but Northern Ireland remained, and continues to remain, part of the United Kingdom. During the Troubles, Irish nationalists and Republicans, who were mostly Catholic, wanted Northern Ireland to unite with the rest of Ireland. Loyalists and Unionists, mostly Protestants, wanted Northern Ireland to maintain its connection with the United Kingdom. 71, a British-made movie follows the story of Gary Hook, a British soldier deployed to Belfast, Northern Ireland in 1971 amid political unrest. Hook becomes isolated from his army unit in a Republican-controlled part of the city, and traverses the city to try to return to it. In so doing, Hook witnesses disturbing scenes of guerrilla war. Today we dig into the history behind the movie. Why did the Troubles begin and why did they end? Does the film accurately depict Belfast in the 1970s, and how widespread was violence of the type shown in the film? How does the film depict relations between Catholics and Protestants, and how does that match the historical reality? And how do we think an Irish-made film on the same subject would look different? To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by Nick Baker. Nick is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Toronto whose research focuses on the history of paramilitarism in Northern Ireland. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get into it. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast a colleague of mine from the University of Toronto, Nick Baker. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast and also for your patience with all of the technical difficulties we've had so far this morning.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Louis. Excited to talk about
0: 71. Yeah, could you please... Introduce yourself and your research area to the listeners.
1: Sure. My name is Nick Baker. I'm a PhD candidate going into my fourth year at U of T in the Department of History. I study Irish and uh, most especially Northern Irish paramilitarism, especially through um, a sort of transnational lens, looking at ideas of imperial citizenship and loyalism sort of within Protestant communities outside of Northern Ireland that lent ideological and material support to some of the struggles that were going on in, in the island of Ireland.
0: Right. it's a, a really interesting topic. Obviously, you you and I know each other well, not just because, you know, we're in the same department, but we actually share a lot of the same committee members uh, for our research. How did you become interested in Northern Ireland and, and Irish history, more generally, especially I, if I remember right, your your master's was on a very different topic, right? So why did you why did you become interested in this topic?
1: It's been a very long and circuitous road. So I did my BA honors thesis on medieval Scottish kingship, hmm. <laughs> moved on to twentieth century Zimbabwean political social history in my master's, and I'm now doing twentieth century Irish paramilitary stuff, hmm. and one of the real reasons that I got involved in this particular area of history is because there's so much overlap between what I did during my master's and what I found sort of lacking in this particular field. So there's a lot of wariness, I suppose, in the field of Irish studies generally when it comes to tackling some ideas of post-colonialism and post-structuralist thought and that kind of thing when it comes to this very specific colonial situation in, in Ireland. So I've, I thought that my sort of earlier training had primed me well to sort of do some more work in this very strange colonial situation that Ireland finds itself in as being a sort of interstitial imperial space, right? Where it was both occupied, obviously, by the English, but also an occupying force more broadly within the British Empire, especially in the 19th and early 20th centuries.
0: Is that the explanation for the, the wariness around those sort of, like, Post-colonial, post-structuralist studies. Do you want to? Do you want to maybe elaborate on what you mean by by awareness?
1: Yeah, sure. So, Irish history, broadly speaking, remains a relatively conservative discipline. There's some conversation back and forth between you know members of um, subaltern school studies who are active in South Asia, for example, other people who study liberation organizations and colonialism, like. In Israel-Palestine, for example, they sort of deal with these themes quite often. Whereas in Irish history, there's, I, I mean, the question to what degree or to what extent, if any, Ireland experienced a degree of coloniality is in itself kind of up for debate in some circles. I mean, the vast scholarly consensus is that, yes, there was a colonial situation, but to what degree it's sort of, it's sort of unique is very much up in the air. And I think that explains a lot of the reticence as to why some people are sort of hesitant to apply certain theoretical methodologies that have been fruitful in other areas.
0: Interesting. OK, that's a good lead in, I think, maybe for our topic today, because the, the movie we'll be discussing relates to these themes of colonialism, imperialism, obviously military and paramilitary, mil- militaries and paramilitaries in Northern Ireland. But let's introduce the movie before we start discussing it. Probably a lot of the listeners, because this is a British movie, I'm not sure how popular it was in North America. You know, a lot of the listeners may not have seen this movie or or maybe saw it years ago, but have forgotten it. So let's give a brief rundown of the plot. This movie is set in the year... The movie is 71. Uh, it's set in the year 1971 in Northern Ireland, specifically Belfast. And the protagonist of the movie is a British soldier who has been deployed to Belfast to, uh, well, I guess how you answer this question is like a little bit of a, a political interpretation. In the British government's view, sort of keep the peace in the view of Irish nationalists to suppress Irish nationalism. But so British forces have been deployed there because this is, you know, the some of the early years of the Troubles, which we'll get into a little bit more about what the Troubles was for people who don't know much about it. But sort of for, as a brief as a very succinct explanation, the, the Troubles was sort of a political unrest in Northern Ireland about the status of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom and the rights of Catholics in Northern Ireland. Anyway, so there are Irish nationalists, paramilitaries that are active in rebelling against the British government at this time. The IRA, there's two different branches of the IRA, technically, but we'll talk about that later. And essentially, he's been deployed here to suppress the IRA. And so at one point, his military unit goes out to the place in Belfast where... There's sort of a big Catholic neighborhood and a big Protestant neighborhood that are adjacent to each other, which is supposed to be in the movie, according to the movie, the site of the worst violence and conflict. And they, they have like a tip or something that one of the houses there is supplying guns to the IRA, so they're going to look for the guns. And in doing so, you know they the British and sort of British aligned forces essentially like beat up these people in their house it's never actually clear if they had the guns or not in the movie but then and essentially like a, a bunch of irish catholics witness this and basically a riot starts and during the riot the protagonist i don't know if i said his name gary hook he gets separated from his unit and so the rest of the movie is basically about him trying to make his way back to the safety of being with his own unit the, the, amongst the British soldiers. But to do so, he has to traverse territory that's hostile, right? The, a lot of the area is controlled by the IRA or at least contested by the IRA. And so he is experiencing, you know, there's a lot of instances of violence at one point. He's in a pub and a bomb goes off. The IRA is specifically trying to find him and kill him. He, he, suffers an injury and has to get like stitched up by a doctor like all, all this sort of stuff. Eventually at the end of the movie he does end up making it back behind british lines, but he's witnessed a ton of violence. He's seen a lot of people die or be wounded. He's had a very traumatic experience, right? And and that's kind of the end of the movie. It's sort of an action movie, I would say, but like not really one that is glorifying the violence it's a pretty grim and depressing movie
1: yeah it's pretty um unrelenting in the pressure yeah you can really sort of you know sense the desperation in private hook trying to get back to uh, palace barracks
0: yeah and this is not a movie I, i would warn people this is not a movie i would watch with your you know little kids or something there's a lot of like pretty nasty stuff that happens you know he meets like a essentially a child soldier at one point who, he's a loyalist kid, he wants to kill all the IRA, and he ends up being in this bombing at the pub and, like, loses some of his limbs. It's, like, quite
1: jarring. It's horrifying. And, yeah, that... I mean, there there are a few things, I think, to say off the top about the sort of premise of the film. Mm -hmm. And the first thing to say is that British were deployed in Operation Banner relatively recently, or I mean, relatively recently to when the film is depicted in 1971, mm-hmm. and they last until about 2007. But Operation Banner from the outset was not particularly well thought through. So there was a lot of like mission creep, for example, when 1st Battalion, which Private Gary Hook, I presume, was attached to. So to the extent to which they are supposed to fight back against so-called dissident nationalists or sort of buttress the support of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, who was essentially like a militarized police force, which we sort of see early on in the film, yeah. whether or not they're there to support the RUC or whether they're there rather to assert their own sort of military control is never really certain. And I think that's sort of borne out in the confusion of the film, especially as it it plays out in this sort of manic attempt to get back. And what's interesting about that child soldier is that, I mean, he is just that, right? He is a child soldier who's obviously quite well connected through his uncle, who's a senior member in the Loyal's paramilitary forces. But what's interesting about that scene is that it sort of condenses the geography of Belfast down. So where Private Hook ends up in the end of the film is in West Belfast which is a Catholic stronghold in the sort of Falls Road area where the Divas Flats were, hmm. are in the Divas Tower. But when Hook meets this child soldier, it's in a sort of Protestant enclave, which is a little bit east of where he ends up, in a place called the Shankill Road area, which was very, very loyalist. Hmm. And so the bomb that goes off and ultimately disfigures this child is in a loyalist pub, right? And it's loyalists who are not particularly good at putting together bombs, end up blowing themselves up. And if the IRA is confused, as you as you mentioned, whether or not it's the provisional IRA or the original IRA, are confused as to whether or not they had a hand in it or if it was UVF, UFF.
0: Right. Yeah. I think those are good points. We'll get into some of the confusion theme, I think, a little bit more. Yeah. It's a really strong theme in the movie. Before we get into that, I think we should maybe... Talk a little bit about the Troubles more generally for people who maybe don't know a lot about it. I think people who are not living in the UK or Ireland maybe don't know the history of, of the Troubles that well. I think a lot of people maybe sort of are, are dimly aware that there's been a lot of violence in Northern Ireland, but don't really understand exactly what happened sort of exactly why I mean I think people have some sense that it's about Irish nationalism conflicting with the British Empire, but like maybe don't fully get it. So I realize that the Troubles is a very complex event to try to ask you to explain Mm -hmm. (laughs) sort of what happened and why in a you know a very short spiel, but That's what I'm going to ask you to do, I guess, is uh, can you can you tell us a bit about like what happened and why with the Troubles? And I realized that with an event like the Troubles, there's sort of a big picture explanation of the hundreds of years of the British Empire in Ireland. And then there's also the sort of more short term causes as to like why this actually starts happening
1: when it does in like the late 1960s. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. I think from the outset, it's worth noting that all of this sort of uncertainty about what the Troubles were and what the Troubles are is sort of reflected in the name, right? Like it's such an anodyne way of putting a conflict that claimed 4,000 lives over 30 years. Mm-hmm. Like just the Troubles, right? It, it It's a very sort of versatile term, which I think is very much deliberate. But in any sense, as you say, there's the sort of long reason where you can go back to sort of like 11th century colonialism <laughs> where you can go back to sort of 16th century and 17th century plantation colonialism as well but for our purposes it's probably best to start with the partition of ireland so that's in 1921 it follows on the a sort of period of um, an independent struggle In Ireland itself, beginning in around 1912 with the second home rule crisis, Mm -hmm. which is when nationalists within what is now the Republic of Ireland sought to carve out a free state separate from the United Kingdom. So essentially the conflict sort of grinds to a halt with Ulster Protestants by and large in the north, agreeing that they will live in what are now the six counties of Northern Ireland. And... The Free State Republic will emerge largely Catholic, not necessarily entirely homogenous in its population. But there's that sort of agreement that's put into place and it's largely stable for many years. Right. But what's built into the Northern Irish political process is a sort of systematic exclusion of Catholics from like positions of civil authorities, whether or not they're in like municipal government or that kind of thing. Catholic communities receive disproportionate amounts of social funding, for example, compared to Protestant communities. There's a great deal of hostility between the two sort of faith communities, and the policing of the two is wildly disproportionate. So if you have a group of loyalists, for example, who are taunting and throwing stones at a group of Catholics, they are likely to be told to just run off, or the RUC might even sort of throw a stone or two themselves, or as if it were the Catholics throwing stones at Protestants, it would be a very, very different story. And so all of this sort of culminates in the 60s and going into the late 60s in particular Things reach a flashpoint in August of 1969, so that's when we have hostilities breaking out, especially in Derry, that's it's the sort of second city of Northern Ireland in the, the uh, Northwest, that eventually spreads throughout the entire entirety of the six counties in which Protestant mobs are sort of chasing, burning out Catholics in tenement houses and other state houses, especially in the inner cities, and forcing especially Catholics, to flee either to the Republic or to these sort of more condensed, ever more condensed Catholic neighborhoods that we see in 71, for example, right, in the Divis mm-hmm. Flats, so where they're almost entirely Catholic-controlled. So it becomes this sort of... Like these, these populations begin to sort of adhere in very sort of strictly controlled neighborhoods after this period in 68,
0: 69. I think it's also worth mentioning the, the some of the history of why... We mentioned very briefly the structural reasons from hundreds of years ago why this happens. But it's worth mentioning, I think, that some of these issues originate in you know, the 17th century. The British decide to send large numbers of Protestant colonists to Northern Ireland specifically. Right. And so that's why Northern Ireland has such a strong protestant population or a a much demographically larger protestant population relative to the rest of ireland it's also why these protestants tend to have a very strong identity of like loyalty to the british empire and that's a really recurring theme throughout the history of protestants in in northern ireland even you know up to the present is is that loyalism is an important part of their political identity and so that's that's an important like structural factor as to, as to why this happens. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. As you mentioned, it's important to note the so-called plantation of Ulster, yeah. which, which is a sort of Cromwellian idea to, to break up both Irish Catholics and so-called old English Irish as well, who were, you know, thought by the English crown to have gone too closely to the sort of Irish barbarism that's been, you know, the forefront of the British imagination for the past 800 years. Right.
0: So the Troubles sees we get these sort of paramilitary organizations arise. We see, you know, the IRA, the UVF, etc., competing with each other. Eventually the Troubles comes to a close. I guess, I guess, I think a lot of people see the end date being the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Mm-hmm. Can you explain sort of why the Troubles comes to an end?
1: Yeah, so there are a couple of compelling reasons, I think, for why the Troubles came to a conclusion when they did. One of which is that the British were always aware, I think, that the best they could hope for was a Pyrrhic victory in the Troubles, that they were never going to be able to defeat, especially after 1972 with um, Bloody Sunday and the intensification of the conflict, that they were never going to be able to defeat republican dissidents physical force republican dissidents in a sort of conventional way so they were essentially hoping to create the conditions around which things would be acceptable to the sort of british administration so that's one of the reasons that the boyer government was willing to sit down at the table when they were in the late 1990s but from the ira's perspective it was also a sort of real politic decision on their part to realize that public support for physical force nationalism was very much waning at this point. That Irish opinion, both north and south of the border, was swinging very much against the sort of these violent outbursts in the streets and the terrible bombing campaigns that had been a, a staple for three decades at this point. Mm-hmm. So Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, at this point, who became the sort of old guard of the IRA at this point, I think saw the writing on the wall that they, too, were never going to be able to drive the British sort of into the sea as they had hoped, and that a sort of negotiated settlement was the best that either either side could hope for, Right, which is a kind of common counterinsurgency story.
0: Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. And so for the past couple of decades, things have been peaceful but since Brexit some of the concerns have resumed right because there's all these questions because the Republic of Ireland is remaining within the European Union and so this presents all these sort of new challenges about the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland which you know I, I don't think it's really like led to violence yet, but it's certainly raised tensions a little bit. Right? Yeah,
1: it, it definitely has. So like, after the Good Friday Agreement in 98, a lot of the, the both loyalist and nationalist paramilitaries agreed to decommission their weapons and essentially enter into a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of working class areas in Belfast and Derry and so on, this sort of, it sounds kind of quaint to call it a lifestyle, but the sort of Paramilitary structures were very sort of difficult to undo. So a lot of Hmm. these people sort of devolved into activities like drug dealing and that kind of thing for much of the 2010s and early aughts. So it wasn't really until Brexit came along that a lot of these sort of latent organizations were kind of given their sort of sectarian push again. So, for example, there was an increase in IRA activity. There was a a British raid on a housing estate in Derry and a young Northern Irish journalist was killed in the crossfire by IRA members. Her name was Lara McKee. And that was a really sort of like a watershed moment for Northern Ireland that lasted maybe a couple of years, I think, when people really saw the potential of the North sliding back into a period of, you know, violence back on the streets, guns ringing out in the night and that kind of thing. And so, there was when Miss McKee was murdered. There was a real pushback against these sort of creeping sectarianism again. Kind of waned and is waxing again, I think, as we see the sort of protocols being undone and reworked, as as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So there is th- there is definitely a worry that things could devolve back into violence. But I think I don't think anyone's expecting thing to to revert back to what it was in the early seventies, for example. Sure.
0: Let's focus back in on the movie. So I want to talk a little bit about the, I mean, obviously the violence is the main theme of the movie and in the film, Belfast really looks like a war zone. It's hard to describe for people who haven't seen it, but you know, there's like flaming cars on the road. There's sort of blockades in the middle of roads where members of paramilitaries are using them as checkpoints. Windows are all boarded up or blocked up. Obviously, like bombs are going off in pubs. People are being killed in the streets. And sometimes people are just like walking by the bodies and things like that. You know, it's it's very grim. Is this what Belfast was like in 1971?
1: I mean, I should say that given that I wasn't alive in Belfast in 1971, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I should probably add a caveat to that. But from what I've seen described, what I've seen from footage, archival footage, from news footage, it seems remarkably accurate to the time. Having said that, I don't know if there's a way to sort of provide a visual cue for listeners, but if you can imagine the sort of like tenement housing from like Birmingham kind of circa 1920s, like the Peaky Blinders kind of, it's almost as though you're stepping into 1910s Birmingham when you're looking at 1970s Belfast, right?
0: In what sense do you mean that? Like, in what way are they similar?
1: In the sense that we're looking at like two and three-story tenement houses, like terraced housing, very sort of, you know, like these places were were built for a purpose, and that was to get as many working-class families in and around industry as possible, right? Okay, yep. So what we see mostly in Belfast in 71, are these sort of inner city housing estates where indeed much of the violence did take place. So what we don't see are the sort of relatively peaceful suburbs of Belfast where the sort of like middling sorts and upper middle class people lived who were sort of in many ways a world apart from the sort of inner city violence that was taking place. So the violence really touched upon everyone in some way, in one way or another, like post- Trouble's research has shown that, you know, pretty well everyone in Northern Ireland has at least one relative or at least one very close friend who is intimately touched by the violence. But the sort of further you get into the inner city, the more true that that becomes. So that you can kind of imagine it as sort of concentric circles, mm-hmm. sort of closer you get to the places like the Divis Flats and the Falls Road and the Shankill Estate in the inner cities of um, Belfast the more you can expect this sort of wildly interpersonal violence of you know, assassinations on street corners, in pubs, back alleys, that kind of thing. There were targeted assassinations that were quite common outside of the inner cities and, and in the suburbs, especially because that's where royal officer constabulary members often lived or people within the civil service and that kind of thing. So a lot of targeted assassinations took place in those areas but the kind of unfettered violence that we see in terms of like the blockades and the stone throwing and the Molotov cocktails and so on, that's really sort of particular spots within Belfast. Okay. So there's one thing that I think the movie gets a little bit wrong is painting Belfast with an extraordinarily broad brush. It's to say that all of Belfast essentially was sort of laboring under this very intense, ever-present poverty, I think, which is most definitely true of the period but it's just not true of the entirety of belfast
0: and what about in the rest of northern ireland is this is this violence really concentrated in belfast maybe Derry as well or are in rural areas is there violence happening as well yeah so
1: it kind of depends on the county and f- for many historic reasons as well so in a place like county down county arma arma in particular Portadown, down some of these places that are a little bit more rural don't tend to have the sort of protestant catholic divide they tend to be more strictly one or the other
0: hmm.
1: if that makes sense okay so you do have very very intense bombing campaigns around the border of the republic in the north you have a lot of intense gun running operations, especially in County Down and Antrim. And the sort of military apparatus of the British does become inscribed on the sort of countryside of Northern Ireland as well. So you'll see observation posts in the middle of sort of farmer's fields and that kind of thing, and, you know, observation posts in the middle of small towns of no more than, you know, 150, 200 people. And whether or not those were to monitor Catholic nationalist activity or to protect loyalist communities is a sort of open question, because the degree to which one can sort of differentiate between royalist or constabulary elements elements within the British Army and loyalism more generally is really kind of foggy territory, because there was so much sort of collusion between the two.
0: That makes sense. I'm also wondering about how temporally specific this violence is so the movie is set in the year 1971 and the violence is quite extreme obviously the troubles was a period of about 30 years yeah essentially like did belfast look like this for 30 years or are we seeing it at a sort of peak of violence from which it declined at some later point so this is
1: definitely the peak that we're looking at 71 72 is by far the peak Mm -hmm. and so yeah, so the movie does something very clever by being filmed or supposedly taking place over the course of two days, right? And that it's able to sort of collapse a very lengthy, complex narrative into something that's very sort of managed, into a ma- very manageable chunk, right? Yeah, And so you're able to sort of see the snapshot of Belfast, but you don't get a sense, right, of what this means for greater Belfast or what this means for the for the rest of the country or much, much less you know as time goes on into the 80s and 90s so all that to say is that the violence it played out in a kind of tit-for-tat way so for example certain events would inevitably lead to more violence as, as you would comes as very little surprise so for example after bloody sunday the IRA didn't have to recruit anymore. In fact, they had to. They were actively turning people away at that point because there was no better recruiting mechanism for the IRA than a British military operation mm. because inevitably they went poorly and inevitably civilians were killed. And so IRA surveys in the 90s showed that as much as 90% of the volunteers joined up immediately in the aftermath of British military violence mm. and the rest of the 10% could be broadly broken down into sort of political or religious ideologies and that kind of thing. But for the most part, it was a very sort of reactionary chain, right? So we see in 71 and 72, these major sort of incidents happening, the ranks of the paramilitary swell, the British sweep in, introduce internment without trial in 72, which they feel breaks up. A period of what they call insurgency and leads into what they call the period of terrorism. So things looked like a sort of conventional counterinsurgency operation up until 1971-72 until the British and the RUC began to become much more successful in infiltrating certain IRA units, which caused them to reconstitute themselves in all sorts of different interesting ways so as to limit the number of people who know who and who, what's, who's going, what's going on and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But with internment without trial, the British were essentially able to eviscerate the ranks of the IRA and take them off the streets and put them into places like Long Kesh and other prisons. So that kind of dilutes a little bit the violence taking place on the streets. But there are also important tactical decisions that are made throughout the 70s and 80s. So like in the 80s, for example, we, we begin to see things become less parochial, I guess, in the sense that the IRA begins to look beyond Ireland's shores to sort of make their sort of statement pieces. So we have, for example, the Brighton bombing in which uh, Prime Minister Thatcher was almost assassinated. We have the assassination of Lord Mountbatten when his boat has exploded uh, or blown up in the lock. So it was a very sort of conscious decision on the part of especially the provisional IRA to sort of dial back some of these interpersonal attacks and sort of make it more apparent that they're going after the sort of bureaucratic and military apparatuses of the British administration and the Northern Irish as well.
0: Interesting. One of the things that interested me the most about your answer there was that the IRA conducted surveys in the 90s. That's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, so one of the um, ironic things about internment without trial was that it created these incredibly concentrated populations of dissident nationalists, right? Who sort of created these almost like political reading clubs, hmm. So we have all kinds of different ideas about how to sort of reorganize the IRA in such a way as to limit exposure, be more sort of effective in carrying out their various operations and and that kind of thing. But it also led to this kind of wild bureaucratization of the paramilitary ranks Mm -hmm. in which only a very sort of select few like Jerry Adams and again, Martin McGuinness and those kinds of people would conduct these sort of internal intelligence operations, trying to decipher, you know, who belongs to which group in Portadown, which group belongs to which in inner Belfast, which group belongs to whom in, uh, you know, Derry and that kind of thing. And it just became Mm. so sprawling after a while that That, yeah, the internal documents like these were generated and passed along to membership. And then for Black, the sort of written newspaper, the sort of like internal newspaper of the IRA, would sort of proposition people for answers to questions like this and and that kind of thing.
0: That would be a very interesting source to look at.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating
0: stuff. Back to the, the movie. So, one of the themes that stood out to me watching this movie is how little separation there was between violence and ordinary life for people who lived in at least this part of Belfast. Mm -hmm. One of the characters in the movie is a teenager who is sort of involved with the provisional IRA. And so... One minute, he's helping his sister with her homework at home. The next minute, he's grabbing some guns that he's hidden under his floorboard, and he's off to go try to shoot this British soldier. Mm-hmm. You know, one minute, some people are having a drink at a pub, and the next minute, a bomb goes off in the pub, right? And and it seems like there are certain background characters who are just sort of used to walking by people laying dead or injured in the streets and stuff. Yeah. W- were violence in everyday life really this close to each other during the troubles again in this part of
1: Belfast and in parts of Derry it it really was so intimate that it was not uncommon for a victim to have known the perpetrator of his or her murder very well Hmm. intimately in fact so people really were living side by side and cheek by jowl with the violence that was going on and I think the movie does a particularly good job of, of showing that in the sense that we have Sean, the, the young teenager, who's sort of an up-and-coming gunman within the provisional IRA, and the, the sort of sense in which you have to be ready at a moment's notice. It was a, a very real thing, right? Because when you're, inducted, when you're inducted into the IRA, you were told in no uncertain terms that you were very, very likely either to end up offside which meant on the run in the Republic, end up in Milltown, which was a massive Catholic cemetery in West Belfast, or end up in Longkesh or one of the other prisons. So people who were Sean's age and people who are the age of like Private Gary Hook, for example, it's a really interesting dynamic that plays out and it's done really well in the film, in which we see people of similar ages, similar backgrounds, sort of coming together on the streets of Belfast to fight in this really ill-defined conflict mm-hmm. in which no one really knows the, what the other side is really thinking. and Because there's been so much sort of rumor and mythologizing at this point, right, about the sort of glory of the Protestant past versus the sort of long tradition of Irish rebellion and that kind of thing and all, all, all of these things at work so yeah all that to say people like sean didn't tend to live to particularly very long lives and for people like him and for their mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters it really was it was it was an everyday conflict and i think you can get that sense as well when you see in the film the barricades which you've mentioned before which were often manned by, you know, young children, boys, girls. But but another thing that's interesting that comes out well in the film is, I'm not sure if you noticed the women who would take to the streets and sort of bash the trash can lids on the pavement or on the sidewalks.
0: Yeah, I was wondering what that was about. So, uh, yeah, tell me me about that. Yeah,
1: so it's interesting. So that absolute din that's created by the, the trash can lids, was both sort of protest and warning.
0: Right. For people who haven't seen the movie, this happens when the British soldiers show up to try to, like, find out if this house has guns, right? So these women are watching the British soldiers and, yeah, making this loud racket bashing these trash can lids on the on the ground.
1: Right, yeah. So, so it, it kind of serves an interesting purpose and is kind of an under-explored and underappreciated, I think, aspect of how women contributed to the national struggle but in any case these host wives who wives who would bash the lids it was both a way to sort of protest the presence of the british cause sort of mayhem within the british ranks because they couldn't hear or think what was going on because the the din was so loud, but also most mm-hmm. importantly it served as a warning for people who were in the area that if you had something on you that you didn't want found by the Mm -hmm. British, now was the time to get the hell out of there. Or if you did have guns in the paneling in the back of your house or underneath the floorboards, now is the time to sort of bury them in the backyard instead because there might have been a tip-off from one of your neighbors that guns are being held there. Right. So this, and in the reflections of the soldiers post-conflict about what sort of stood out, in their memories, most thirty years later, for most of them, it would be the sound of trash cans, because it became so synonymous, right, with this notion of just confusion on the streets, not knowing who was your supposed enemy, who was your supposed ally, and just the general sort of mayhem of the entire situation.
0: That's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know anything about that. That's that's quite interesting.
1: Because the other thing about the, the tenement housing that that went itself well to some of these organizations, is that they would have common laneways going behind and through them, right? So mm-hmm. it would make communication quite a bit easier if you were seeing if you were seeing an RUC patrol or British patrol coming down the street to run behind the houses, be behind the tenements, some often with shared walls, so you could sort of give secret knocks or pass along messages saying it's time to get out. It's time to hide the weapons. It's time to hide so-and-so. So So the architecture lends itself very well to, to that kind of gruel insurgency.
0: I was going to say, that's fascinating how the physical geography related to, to those events.
1: And we see it again in the Divis flats as well, right? Where there's this sort of high modernist approach to architecture where, you know, this, very British idea of communities living in the sky and that kind of thing and how it would create a sort of sense of neighborhood just you know 12 20 stories high but the way in which it basically created citadels for both loyalist and nationalist paramilitaries right who had sort of like a 360 degree vantage point of their territory the flats became kind of indistinguishable one from another, which was incredibly confusing for especially the British who were unfamiliar with the territory. And if you remember, one of the British commanders, he's trying to get his bearings and he says something about the street signs missing. And that that was another sort of classic way to confuse the British because they had no idea where the hell they were or what they were looking for. So move the street signs, change the street signs. All of these things were ways of you know manipulating the geography. Hmm the sort of physical geography of place to better entrench and carry out some of these operations.
0: Fascinating. I want to ask you about the film's depiction of sectarianism. One of the striking bits of dialogue in the film was when you know, Gary Hook meets this loyalist boy, who I mentioned earlier, who he wants to kill all the IRA. And the boy at one point asks Gary Hook if he is Catholic or Protestant. And Hook sort of says, like, he doesn't really know exactly what religion he is. And the boy is shocked to see someone not know what their religious identity is. Right. And one thing that really stood out to me is that, you know, if you so if you live in Northern Ireland, right, you you know, if you're Catholic or Protestant, it's like a very clear part of your identity in a way that I, I guess it's not for Gary Hook coming from England. Absolutely. And. One of the impressions I got from this movie was that Catholic and Protestant are shown more so as like factions than they are faiths, right? Mm -hmm. It's not really so much about what your religious beliefs are, and it's more about us versus them. Is this pretty accurate of like how people would have thought about the conflict during the Troubles? Do you think these faiths sort of just got distilled into like our side versus their side?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, someone from Falls Road wouldn't meet with someone from Shankill Road to talk about, you know, Luther's theses and the sort of finer points of theology between Protestantism and Catholicism. I mean, like, being facetious, obviously. But yeah, the, the extent to which religion became a placeholder purely for identity over and beyond sort of personal belief is something that's very much alive within the sort of historiography of the troubles. Mm-hmm. So the extent to which we're talking about sort of Protestant, so-called Protestant true believers or Catholic true believers is really a sort of slippery question because there's like, there's this old joke, right? Of someone crossing the border in 71 going from the Republic to the North. They're stopped at a Royal Royalist checkpoint. The person in the car is asked, are you a Catholic or are you Protestant? The person in the car says, I'm Jewish. The loyalists say okay well are you a protestant jew or are you a catholic jew because it, it didn't really matter what you believed in necessarily it just mattered sort of which group you were willing to put in put your lot in with so to speak right so that's not to say that there weren't on either sides extremely vicious religious rhetoric especially coming from people like ian paisley who created the free presbyterian church which was wildly wildly anti-catholic to the extent that you know it was quite fascist and deeply problematic in terms of wanting to eradicate certain populations so there were absolutely religious fanatics like ian paisley and his free church presbyterian followers on the catholic side there were absolutely people who believed wholeheartedly in the catholic church in the catechism in the church's teachings and in the Republic, there were priests, in fact, who would often act as gun runners, or who would be confessors to IRA members or who would find places to hide guns on parish grounds and that kind of thing. I mean, that's not to say that there was the, that's the majority of them. Obviously, it was a minority. But all of that is to say that it's very easy to talk about Protestants and Catholics and nationalists and unionists as being sort of synonymous terms Mm -hmm. but it's a bit slipperier than that and can be a bit reductionist i think right but by and large i think the the film does do a good job of capturing that sense in which you you know how, how seriously could you take your religious convictions right if you're walking to church on a sunday and then planting a semtex plastic explosive on you know a at children's school the next day sure so it, it's a really fraught the religious question is incredibly fraught very fascinating and just incredibly complicated and complex
0: yeah that makes sense i think one thing maybe the movie did well was show how these identities become very like polarizing political the religious identities become very polarizing political identities notwithstanding that they are not completely synonymous. I also wanted to ask you about the history of paramilitaries during the troubles. The movie really features the IRA, the Irish Republican army. There are two different versions of the IRA, the provisional IRA and the official IRA, which are a bit different. The movie talks about how the provisional IRA is, is more radical generally in the troubles. There were more, paramilitaries than just the ira right we also have for example the ulster volunteer force so i wanted to ask you why these emerge when they did and also you know how did an organization like the ira supply itself with weapons the uk has very strict access to guns and so i'm wondering how the ira was able to like obtain weapons essentially
1: yeah that's a great question so with the sort of two paramilitaries that are sort of the focus of the film, the provisional IRA and the UVF. It's important to note that they're sort of iterations or reiterations of previous groups. So during the second home rule crisis, that's when the first Ulster Volunteer Force first came into being. And the IRA established itself a little bit earlier as well and was obviously active during the War of Independence. Mm -hmm. So it's important to keep in mind that these two organizations have a sort of longer history, and by resurrecting them in the way that they did, it was a sort of conscious way of recalling these sorts of supposedly glorious pasts. So for the IRA, it was tapping into the sort of rich history of resistance. For the UVF, it was this history of standing up for British imperial values and that kind of thing. As for why we sort of see the... The game, the strength that they do in the 1970s. It's in large part because we kind of have to situate the paramilitaries within their sort of international context. So the IRA, in particular, the UVF always kind of stays a pretty parochial organization. In fact, most loyalists do get most of their funding either from Northern Ireland, some areas in the Republic, some. Protestant sympathizers in Britain itself, as well as a major, major contributions from Canada and in particular, in particular Toronto, actually. Mm -hmm. But in any case, the IRA is a much more sort of international organization in the sense that they were able to tap into similar liberation organizations that were active contemporarily. So for example, the Palestinian Liberation Organization in the Levant and North Africa, They were able to create ties with FARC, the rebel group, the Marxist rebel group in Colombia, as well as various movements in India as well. So they were able to sort of enmesh themselves in this sort of wider network of liberation organizations and liberatory sort of struggles that were so much a part of the colonial world in the the 1970s and 80s. And so it was through these connections that they were able to sort of... Develop the know-how and the techniques of evading port security. So whether they'd be landing in ports like Cork or Dublin or in airports, finding ways which to, I mean, the most frequent way of getting the weapons would be to cross the channel or to cross the IRC, across the channel, just because of the quantities involved. But in any case, they were able to sort of gain various techniques from... Gaddafi, among others, Hmm. who was interested in sort of spreading the process of decolonization, but also very interested in destabilizing the UK as well. Right. Okay. So there's certainly that going on as well. And for the IRA, it wasn't terribly uncommon to come across, if you were in a bar, for example, in Boston or Chicago or New York, to see like a little sort of like tip jar was basically collecting for the ira right Mm -hmm. and so there there were agents in in the united states in particular who would collect for the cause so to speak and send sort of material support in the form of money as well as sending major shipments of guns from places like boston harbor
0: right the international connections of Irish nationalism are really interesting. I mean this is a part of my research more focused on the 19th century, right? But I some of my research is about the Fenian Brotherhood. So there's sort of long-standing histories of people originally from Ireland or maybe their ancestors are from Ireland who have emigrated somewhere else in the world, often somewhere in the British Empire or the United States and participating in Irish nationalist happenings in some way back in Ireland, right? Whether that be through contributions or whether that be through volunteering to be part of the Fenian Brotherhood or or something like that. And so this is this is quite a long standing history and the reverse, right? People who came from Protestant Northern Ireland to somewhere like Canada participating in sort of loyalism, even from Canada. I was also struck by, you know, you mentioned the interconnections borrowing from decolonial strategies elsewhere around the world. And this also reminded me that like the origin of the Troubles is also through these sort of transnational connections of activism and things like that, right? I think in the conventional narrative of the Troubles, it begins in 1968 with a student protest that is sort of very heavily inspired by the American civil rights movement and, and other sort mm-hmm. of activist movements around the world and it's sort of seeing marginalized peoples around the world, like campaign for their rights and sort of Catholics in Northern Ireland, these Catholic students in Northern Ireland are inspired by this. Right. So there's really interesting global dimensions to all of this that you don't really see as much in the, in the film, but, but are sort of happening in the background.
1: Yeah. It, it, it becomes very much part of the identity of especially the provisional IRA. Mm -hmm. You know, they're very sort of proud, I suppose, to, to be involved in these sort of decolonial struggles. So even today, for example, when remnants, I guess, of whether they be the continuity IRA, the real IRA, the provisional IRA, whatever iteration of the IRA they may belong to, when you often see the murals that sort of are all over Northern Ireland, especially the cities like in Belfast and Derry. Often, when you'll see sort of freedom fighter murals and that kind of thing, the Irish Republican will be side by side with a Palestinian liberation fighter, sort of like hands sort of crossing through the jail cells and kind of uniting in struggle and that kind of thing. Mm. So it becomes becomes a really durable part of the IRA's identity that they, be, they, they belong to this sort of much larger, much larger struggle.
0: Yeah, I think I've seen as well, you know, in my study of the Fenian Brotherhood, which is in the 1860s, I feel like I've seen some pamphlets which make mention of the common struggle of Ireland and Poland, which is interesting, right? Where they're, they're sort of like, oh, we share this experience of trying to... Carve out our our nation from an imperial power. So it's kind of a, an interesting parallel there. Yeah,
1: they they never stop looking for allies. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So on the topic of the paramilitaries, the film really features a lot of infighting between these two branches of the IRA. And I wanted to know what you thought about the depiction of infighting between groups that you would think would be allies, essentially, right? Because that's a that's a really prominent feature in the movie. I will say from what I know about Irish nationalist history in the 19th century, this is, this is a pretty common occurrence, right? This is sort of a defining feature of Irish nationalism is groups will sort of commonly splinter because they can't quite agree on what the precise goals or the methods to carry out those goals. But, but can you comment on its depiction in, in this movie and, and its specific
1: history and the troubles? Sure. I can't remember if I've mentioned this or not, but, Brendan Bean, the now deceased Irish poet who used to belong to the IRA, has this famous quip about the first item on the agenda of one of these organizations being to first split, right. which I think is very sort of accurate. And there are definitely ideological reasons for the, the rifts that we see sort of in the film and in the history of the Troubles more generally. There is that sort of kind of classic trope that's in the movie of the sort of old guard making new for this more sort of radical new that's more willing to engage in direct violence and direct confrontation, that kind of thing. But one of the things that the film does quite brilliantly, I think, is draws attention to the sense in which particularly within nationalist circles. The British were so effective at cultivating contacts within the IRA, within the the broader movement generally, that not only were you know people arrested and various actions sort of neutralized before they were able to take place and that kind of thing. But there were sort of assassinations even taking place between and amongst these groups, right? Because the degree to which they were infiltrated by the British was a completely open question for almost the entirety of the Troubles mm. that lent degree of suspicion to these groups that they never could get under, could, could, never could get out from underneath of. So for example, we see the character of Boyle, who's throughout the film seems to be a sort of ardent Republican nationalist who's colluding with the British, right, through the military military force unit, which is a sort of kind of like surreptitious, very kind of working in the shadows British military organization that's eventually disbanded in seventy four because of the incredibly illegal things that they were up to. Right. But in any case you can see the sort of way that the British would cultivate contacts. The IRA would sort of try to cultivate their own within the British military apparatus to try and get the upper hand over each other. But it ends up being this just sort of snake pit of you know conspiracy and distrust. Yeah. And, and that leads to a lot of restructuring in the 80s, in which the IRA discharges with this sort of largely... Brigade structure that they borrowed from the British military, and to skew it rather for these much smaller, smaller cells in which you know three or four people would know who belongs to their group, but they wouldn't necessarily know of anyone outside of that. So there's sort of people giving the instructions, trying to keep distance from the sort of rank and file. So there's a, for example, there's a an infamous informant who was working with the British for decades went by the codename Steak Knife. And they're pretty sure they've figured out who this person is. He's been cited, I think, most recently in Tenerife. And he has been held responsible for the murders of dozens of dissidents, dissident Republicans as well, who was given the sort of green light by the British to basically clear house to make their lives easier.
0: Wow. Yeah, you mentioned the the theme about distrust and not knowing who's on whose side. And that's a really strong theme in the movie. I think is that a lot of the characters, it's not quite clear who they're allied with. It's also not always quite clear what's going on. I think there's sort of a lot of confusion. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this scene right where these loyalists in collaboration with someone from the British military are building a bomb and they accidentally set it off, and the IRA guys assume because of the they were building this bomb in a loyalist pub, so a bomb goes off in a loyalist pub, and the IRA guys assume that it was one of their IRA bombs. But you know they're each sort of accusing the other of being, oh, you you must have set off the bomb, and and then at the end of the movie, obviously the British they don't want to acknowledge that one of their troops was helping build a bomb so there's a lot of like misinformation confusion Mm -hmm. I think the movie does a good job of portraying that
1: yeah absolutely and yeah so like the unit which that British soldier was helping the bomb construction the the military response force they would they would use seized IRA weapons to conduct a lot of their operations whether or not it was against civilians or IRA members so that it would at least have the veneer of a a Republican killing Hmm. so that it couldn't necessarily be traced back to them, but it would necessarily create more distrust amongst the Republican ranks. Because if an outside force comes in and conducts an assassination using all of the material and techniques that someone from within the IRA would use, it sort of it begs the question, right? It's, mm-hmm. so who do it, it, you start pointing fingers, trying to get to the bottom of it? And it's an extremely effective way to undermine the sort of operational capacities of these dissident groups, which the British were able to do again very effectively, but through very heinous and cold-blooded, calculated means. Yeah.
0: So a little bit about the the making of the movie. This movie is a British-made movie, and I was wondering how you think an Irish-made movie would look different on this subject. You know, I think one impression I have is the hero of the movie is a British soldier, right? And you're sort of, I think, intended to cheer for him, you know, hope he gets back safe. The, the IRA characters are more so the villains of the movie, which I think... I have a hard time imagining an Irish-made movie on this subject being framed that way. So that stood out to me. Are there any other things that stand out to you?
1: Yeah, I think the the filmmaker was quite brilliant in a couple of different ways. By collapsing the time essentially into two days, it allows the director and the writers and producers and so on a certain degree of latitude to not really engage in the historical narrative. Like they can they can accurately depict what an operation might have looked like in 1971 in Belfast. But I think they quite rightly and quite smartly do it in a sort of fictionalized way that takes place in a very compressed period of time so that they don't necessarily have to engage with these broader questions. Right. So it it does it is able to sort of pull that sort of quasi-apolitical line that you probably wouldn't see if this had been produced either in the Republic or in the North. But having said that, and, and I mean, this is the degree to which a depiction is fair or not. I'm, I'm sure this is present in your work as well. It kind of permeates everything that we do in, in Irish history. So whether or not we're being too sympathetic to one side or too harsh on the other. But I think one of the great things about this film is that it it does a pretty good job of not taking sides. Hmm. So it shows, like, for example, we were talking about the sort of difficulty in differentiating who is on whose side and that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the things that this film does so particularly well. So we have this sort of 20 year old guy, Gary Hook from Derbyshire, working class part of the UK. He's mingling with working class people, loyalists and Republicans in the North. And in the North, you can't differentiate between a Republican and a loyalist just by looking at them. Of course, they dress the same, they look the same, they act the same. So I think the film does a particularly good job of showing the sort of the gray areas that, are, that were part of, that were, you know, essential to this conflict.
0: Right. That makes sense. I think one thing that you in your comments stands out to me is that the idea of neutrality in your depiction is a really thorny issue for depictions of Irish history in particular. And I think, it, you know, increasingly historians feel like the the idea of a neutral depiction of history is sort of a false errand or an impossible errand, right? Mm-hmm. In general. But it seems like For at least some other histories, there's ways of representing them that for viewers will be, for most viewers will be non-controversial. Whereas any depiction of Irish Irish history feels like it's it's very hard to avoid it feeling like it's taking a side. It feels like a a sort of defining feature of portraying Irish history is this this sort of challenge, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, your your listeners may if they're aware that we're recording this on the 12th of July, might read something into that and say that, you know, we're loyalist sympathizers for choosing to commemorate the battle of the Boyne by having a podcast for the troubles.
0: Yeah. This wasn't uh, this wasn't an intended <laughs> sort of loyalist recording. Uh, this wasn't not, not what I was going for. I just, it was just worked out with my schedule. <laughs>
1: But such such as the fraught playing field, I think, of Irish history is that so much can be read into, you know, small comments and small editorial decisions. For example, if you're if you're a loyalist watching 71, you might be sort of taken aback at the depiction of the ineptitude of the bomb makers in the pub, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that invariably there were very poor bomb makers on both sides. Sure. Yeah, and so too on. You would see maybe that the IRA is being depicted as being too cozy with the British or something like that, and from their perspective, you may feel quite hard done by. So yeah, this this idea of of fairness is an albatross. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah, it feels like there's right there's hundreds of years of symbolism and very strong animosity that's sort of layered on layered and layered and layered for ge- generations which makes irish history really interesting yeah
1: but also really challenging i, I mentioned at the, i think i mentioned this at the top of the podcast that some people date the occupation of ireland as late as or as early rather as the 11th century and i mean i don't mean that facetiously there there are people who would genuinely date the period of colonization at or around 1066 hmm. so you know, yeah, there's literally centuries of myth making and historical arguments and you know, grappling with these questions over generations. So yeah, it's it's bound to create the sort of this very rich rich history that we're dealing with.
0: Yeah. Certainly you see a lot of references to 800 years of colonialism in in Irish history, which I think actually that's dating it to like the 12th century. So even later than the one you're, you're talking about, but, but some of the history of the 12th century is, is seen as like sometimes the origin point. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to, to mention about the movie that we haven't got to yet? We've
1: spoken sort of tangentially about these sort of shadowy British military agencies that were kind of, on the periphery, both in th- with respect to the RUC and more conventional battalions and paratroop regiments. So we talked about the um, military response force. They're disbanded in 74, replaced with a sort of similar counterinsurgency element called the special reconnaissance unit. They get into some hot water as well, so that they're given a new kind of iteration as well in the 80s. In 1987, I think the Mobile Reconnaissance Search Unit is created. So there are all sorts of, just as the RUC, just as the UVF and the IRA is kind of constantly trying to respond to situations on the ground, so too are British intelligence elements. And we get a sense of this in the film that all of this was very sort of under the table. And that is... The extent to which it was under the table is still very much up for debate, and whether or not we'll ever sort of see the files or hear the stories that will prove just how complicit the British government was in perpetuating the troubles and in assassinating civilians, we'll probably see in the next five to 10 years, hopefully as Freedom of Information requests come through. Mm but i think that that's one of the things that that's very much alive in the irish imagination of the troubles and the memory of what happened in those 3 decades in northern ireland from the northern and irish perspective that somehow often lost on non-irish audiences right yes the british were not just there for hearts and minds or sort of peacekeeping mission right there's a very sort of direct and purposeful reason for their presence.
0: Yeah. There's always like a challenge in studying history of government wrongdoing because the government tends to preserve its own historical documents, which can sometimes, that's a challenge for historians, right? And, and yeah. some governments historically have you know, destroyed documents that look or will reflect poorly on them. Some governments don't let you look at those documents for many decades after the events, etc. So that's a real challenge for historians, especially historians studying a topic that is relatively recent history.
1: Yeah, like a, a great example is like the Mau Mau emergency in Kenya in the 50s and 60s. The British did a, well, in the end, it didn't turn out to be that fantastic of a job, but hid literally miles of documentation in a hidden facility in Britain mm. to, um, you know, cover all of the stuff up. Yeah. yeah. It's something as historians, we have to be extremely careful about, mm. you know, examining why something was left in the records as opposed to, you know, what what could be missing and what, what caused that absence. Right.
0: Yeah, definitely. So from a historian's perspective, what was your favorite thing about the movie? if you could change one thing about the movie, what would you like to change and why? And I'll also just ask you, like, did you like this movie? Did you think this was a good movie or not?
1: I love this movie, to be honest. I mean, I'm quite a fan of sort of like low simmering tense movies like this Mm. to begin with. So from the outset, I kind of had my attention for that reason. Mm. And again, (laughs) They do such a good job of sidestepping the contentious historical aspects that it's really difficult to say anything. It's difficult to accuse the director of a particularly egregious error one way or the other mm. because they do such a brilliant job of sort of not engaging in the really difficult parts. right?
0: But I feel like that can itself be a criticism in that sort of ignoring the contentious issues can be itself poor historical storytelling, right? I, I watched, I recently watched actually a documentary. It was like a five hour documentary on Irish history, just sort of the whole span of Irish history. And it was really interesting because like most of it, you know, it's like the classic narrated documentary. It's sort of explaining events. And once it got to the troubles, it just sort of stopped trying to explain. Like it just sort of, it just sort of said there was violence And that's kind of all it said. It didn't really explain much of why or what exactly happened. It just sort of had a few little like audio clips and photos. Not that this movie is trying to be a documentary, but I think Mm. that we have to be sometimes wary about documentaries or, or films that just sort of like not engage with the matter that's uncomfortable to talk about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree 100%, but there's an interesting aspect to that as well. And that's, I mean, this is going in a direction that I have absolutely no authority speaking under, but of sort of like responsible filmmaking, I guess. Because not so much in the film, but we get the sense with the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 that the troubles are sort of bookended quite nicely. That it was a 30-year period. Everyone decided to sort of lay down weapons in 1998. They were literally dumped in concrete so that they could never be used again and sort of hostilities end there. But within the communities, like on Falls Road and within the Shankill Road and that kind of thing, the conflict and the afterlives of the conflict persist to this day, right? Like the friction between the communities may have shifted from quasi-religious convictions to these ideas of independence versus loyalism. But what, what's been left over is the sort of... Uh, how should I put it? A sort of local big man politics hmm. in which you have these leaders who were, you know, central to an aspect of the troubles, then the the troubles end, but the the sort of structure remains. And within a lot of these still divided neighborhoods there are cross community efforts that are overtures to peace so like you'll have people who are members of the ruc coming into loyalist neighborhoods or to republican neighborhoods and discussing like what they did why they did it whose orders they were following so too you'll have loyalists going into republican areas and schools and community centers and soldiers coming back over to explain what their role was and that kind of thing so there is within these microcosms the potential for conflict to kick off again in major and sort of really sort of vicious ways. I sort of alluded to that earlier with the Lear McKee murder. Yeah. So while I'm not saying that a film like 71 is going to, you know, lead necessarily to, you know, people taking to the streets and bombing hotels in Brighton and, you know, pubs in Liverpool and that kind of thing. But nevertheless, these things, there's still enough cultural currency within these communities and the, the Troubles haven't really ended, right? So I think there's something to be said for leaving certain things unsaid mm-hmm. and letting some of these community workers who are still working on post, the post-Troubles order sort of do their work and what Hollywood kind of do their thing. If if that makes some degree of sense.
0: I think so. Don't let these movies revive these old tensions.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like there was so sort of like you know, there's like Patriot Games and like Michael Collins and those kind of really sort of romanticized versions of not only the troubles necessarily, but sort of, you know, armed struggle more generally yeah. and that kind of thing. So I think The more movies that we have, like 71, that are sort of open to different perspectives without necessarily saying one is the sort of most romantic or the sort of like most attractive or or that kind of thing is quite a a good idea. Right.
0: All right. That makes sense. Nick, this has been really fun to talk to you about. I, I feel like I've learned a lot. This has been really interesting. So thank you so much for making the time, including... All the extra time the listeners can't see trying to sort out computer problems. Do you have anything you'd like to share with the audience that you're working on or social media stuff or anything like that?
1: No, I mean, I've just defended my comprehensive exam, so I'm working on my dissertation proposal. Now. Congrats, so I, by the way. Thank you very much. So I don't have much to plug there, but if you, if you want to see um, Histories of the Troubles retweets and Tottenham Hotspur highlights, you can always follow me on Twitter at and DL Baker. It's not too much interesting stuff you'll find there, but...
0: I think think you've got
1: some interesting tweets. Well, we'll see. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much for joining me today. All right. Thanks so much, Lewis.
0: That's our interview for today. Thank you for listening and a big thank you to Nick for chatting with me. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I've included some book recommendations in the show's description. And if you'd like to see some historical images related to The Troubles, check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you share it with someone or on your social media. Personal recommendations make a huge difference for growing the audience. And if you'd like to leave a review for the show on the Apple podcast page, that's also a huge help. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, leave one on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. I'm also happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics, and if you're a historian who's interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to message me, too. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his novelty orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Nethkaria. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history.